0: I am a Christian psychologist and the bulk of my work has been done within the Christian community over 47 years. In that space that we call Christian, I have worked with abuse, violence, and trauma. I am a lover of Jesus Christ and his word and I believe he himself called me to this work. I believe it is his work, not mine, and it is a privilege to do. But it is also a grievous work. I have seen many in the Christian world who have been oppressed, raped, trampled underfoot, abused and battered, and sadly it has often been by others who call themselves Christian. Every human life in this world, everyone, is a force. Every human life is endowed with power. Our influence pours out perpetually. And if you're a bit skeptical about that, think of this. The tiniest newborn influences two sleeping adults. (laughs) and those adults are roused out of bed to come and feed and care for that little one. If those adults ignore or refuse to come and care and harden themselves to the need of a newborn, rejection, not care, will become the predominant influence in that little one's life. So the most helpless among us influence our lives. If we refuse and harden ourselves to the influence of others, we are not only shaping ourselves in bent ways, we are also shaping them. Our response to little ones of any kind, to the vulnerable, exposes who we are. If those two adults do not get out of bed and do not care for that little one, we are learning something about them in that process, not about the little one. So the most helpless around us influence our lives and our response exposes us. And over time, that habituated response of the adults shape both the adults and the little one. If I continue to harden my heart, I am shaping myself in a particular direction and the one that I am hardening it toward. So they're both bent in a particular direction by the one with the greater power. The vulnerability of the baby exposes the hearts of the adults, and this is a very important principle as we look this morning at power and its abuse. So when I use the word power, I simply mean that we have the ability to do something. We have the capacity to influence, or to leverage, or to master, or to dominate, or to coerce. Every human being has power, and by our sheer presence in this world, every one of us in this room has an effect on this world and on other people. It is inherent in being human to have power, It can be used for good, it can be used for evil, it can be withheld for good, and it can be withheld for evil. In Genesis, we read that when God created human beings, he invested them with power. He said, let us make humans in our likeness and let them rule. That's a power word, right? He told them to be fruitful and to rule and subdue. They were to be fruitful in the use of their power, using it to rule and subdue the earth, not each other. The Hebrew word there means dominion or dominate. The word subdue could mean to conquer or subjugate or keep under, and of course, those words also have very negative uh, meanings like put in under bondage and things like that. But the important thing is that the original directive from God was that that ruling and subduing was of his world, not of human beings. In the same verse it says that God created humans in his own image. So power was given to humans who reflected God, the God who made them. And what do we know about him? He's good, he's faithful, he's a refuge, he's truth, He's love, so power was given to human beings who bore the character of God. And we are told that that God of all power blessed those human beings and pronounced a benediction over them. Well, we all know what happened after that, right? A deceptively beautiful creature who had utterly rejected the power of God and any likeness to him came and deceived the humans using God's words. You can, do that, you can do what God told you not to do, he said. You wanna be like God? You can be like God and do X, which he said not to do. Now God said, you're made in my likeness. And the enemy said, you wanna be in his likeness? Do this. And so mirroring the enemy Those humans used their power to choose against God, took what what looked good, and fed on it. They used their power to choose evil when the power was meant to be used to choose good. Power used by those who originally bore the character of God ended up being used by those who bore a likeness to the enemy. And that power is not power used to bless but to harm, not just others, but the self as well. So we're gonna look more closely at this thing called, called power so we can better understand the power that we have, that you have, and how it can be used for good or evil, healing or harm. So I think you would agree with me that the issue of power and deception has become a frequent topic in recent years, certainly been in the headlines enough particularly in terms of the Christian world. The media has been rather effective in exposing the abuse of power in Christendom. So we hear about power and its abuse in individuals, in families, in churches, in, and all sorts of other things, political circles, governments, whatever. We hear about deception and how cover-ups have been carried on for years in large institutions and organizations and churches. During my 47 years of listening, I have sat with men and women who have been sexually abused as children and assaulted as adults. I have sat with those who have suffered domestic violence, clergy sexual abuse, sex trafficking, genocide, war, and kidnapping. I have also worked with Christian leadership. Many come because they're burnt out, depressed, weary, grieving, Some come for difficult matters in their churches. But sadly, others have come, pastors, missionaries, elders, professors, heads of organizations, have come because they have used their power to bless and used it instead to harm, to control the intellects, the emotions, the hearts, and the sex lives of their so-called sheep. They've used the sheep as food for themselves rather than feeding the sheep that God called them to serve. Others have used their power to silence or cover up such abuses for the sake of God's work. In other words, they have withheld using their God-given power for good out of fear and self-protection. Needless to say, I have seen much damage done to both the body and the name of Christ. And it is for the sake of that body and that wonderful name that I think we need to look at these issues of power and abuse. So you are a part of the body of Christ and many of you are caregivers or in leadership. That means you have relationships where you hold power in vulnerable or perhaps broken lives. Whether you are aware of it or not, whether you feel powerful or not, you have power in others' lives. I believe that you care about the body in the name of Christ or you wouldn't be sitting here on a Saturday morning. You don't want to hear the word woe from the throne of God, which is what he spoke to the shepherds of Israel who fed on his sheep. He said this, those who are sickly, you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost." So you hear there the withholding of power for good but with force, he said, and with severity, you have dominated my sheep. Those shepherds misused their God-given power, and God's response was to remove his flock from their care. I believe that you're here because you desire to care for and protect the sheep of God. You do not want them to become prey to you or to anyone else, so out of honor, For that desire and concern, not only for the sheep, but for the glory of God, let me give you some thoughts about power. Now, we've already defined it. It's the ability to make something happen. It's the ability to influence others. We have noted that our power originated in God's image and that it is now twisted and very easily abused by us. It is important to us to note also that though all of us have power, many humans feel powerless. Some in certain contexts, some all the time. Any of you who have small children and know in those experiences that are frequent, when those children seem to be unruly and running all over the place and you can't get anybody to listen to you, you feel powerless. You are not. What you are is highly, Uh, likely to misuse your power because of your frustration or anger or feeling uh, not not having capacity to deal with your own kids. So when we feel powerless, it doesn't mean we don't have power. It simply means we are far more likely to use it to harm. Fragilities and weakness do not remove power. They make us vulnerable to using it destructively. It is also important to note that power is not a fixed trait. You don't have the same amount of power in every arena and every place you go. So an individual's power can vary with context. So for example, I have power over my grown sons because I'm their mother. However, they are both well over six feet tall. (laughs) So they have the greater physical power. A dynamic and brilliant CEO of a huge corporation may wield tremendous power over many, but you put him in front of his critical mother, and you may find all sorts of unresolved issues, and you will watch his power seemingly vanish, which may in fact feed his need to abuse his power as a CEO. His sense of powerlessness in one arena may be the very thing that drives him to reach for power in another. We can't talk about power without also discussing its flip side which is vulnerability. When somebody's vulnerable, all that means is that they are susceptible to attack or injury. So that would include everybody in this room. It means, it's from the Latin and the word means to wound. A client in a counselor's office, a parishioner in a pastor's office, a student in a teacher's, a patient in a doctor's office, a child with a parent, those are all vulnerable people. Citizens of a country are vulnerable to tyrannical governments. Whenever power is used in a way that wounds the vulnerable, that exploits trust, abuse has occurred. The word abuse basically means to use wrongly. So when a person with power uses another for his or her own ends, discards or destroys another, abuse has occurred. The shepherd has used the sheep for food. When we talk about abuse of power, we must also understand what what we mean when we say something is consensual. This particularly comes up in situations where victims of, say, sexual abuse or assault are adults. However, in order to, to give consent, one must have the capacity to choose. Obviously, if you're anesthetized in a hospital bed, you do not have the capacity to choose. It doesn't matter how old you are, how smart you are, how strong you are. If your whole self has been anesthetized over the years by child sexual abuse or battering or verbal abuse, or you're full of drugs or alcohol, you do not have the capacity to consent. That capacity has been trampled, killed. Also, to freely consent means that you're free to say no. If you're five and he's 40, if he's the boss and can fire you, If someone has the power to ostracize you from your community or any number of things, consent is not possible because it is not safe to say no. Now, there are lots of kinds of power and it changes again with context. So let's look at some different types. The most obvious, of course, is physical power. The bigger and stronger have power over the smaller and the weaker. Usually a man with a woman, a parent with a child, an older child with a smaller child. Physical power also can be presence rather than size, and I'm sure you've all known somebody whose personality and charisma is a force to be reckoned with. And they come into a room and everybody's attention goes to that person. It's physical power, and it's not about size or strength necessarily. Another kind of power is verbal. People who have a command of words, or articulate can dominate a conversation, a relationship, a group, or even a nation. We use words to sway others toward what we want. Words can be used to influence and encourage, or they can be used to humiliate or deceive. Words have the power to move large numbers of people. You think of the power of Martin Luther King and his tremendous influence with his words. And then you think of the power of Adolf Hitler's words and the tremendous influence he had for evil. You think of times when you have used words to titillate, to condemn, or to shock because of some need in yourself. It served you in some way, and you think of other times when you have used words to affirm or to lift up or give hope. Verbal power is a tremendous power. The third kind is emotional power. Spouses have this kind of power over each other. Parents and children wield as well. I have emotional power over my clients. People can exercise that power by their moodiness and I'm sure that's the one kind of person everybody in here has also met. It's sort of this kind of person that holds everybody in bondage to their feelings and you're always testing to see how they feel before you decide how you should act. That's emotional power. You walk on eggshells because you want to prevent a mood descending on them. Spouses that punish by withdrawal, refusing to talk, using silence for weeks on end or days on end are using emotional power, not only to hurt the other, but to control. Preachers have emotional power. They can sway an audience, convince church members for good or ill When emotional power and verbal power are combined in ways that speak to the longings of our hearts, that force is tremendous. Listen to some words. Today, Christianity stands at the head of this country. I pledge I will never tie myself to those who want to destroy Christianity. We want to fill our culture again with the Christian spirit. We want to burn out all the recent immoral development. In short, we want to burn out the poison of immorality that has entered into our own life and culture. Now just take those words at face value. Do they resonate with you? Would you like to see those things happen? Do they express something you long for? Here's a comment that one listener who heard that speech said, This puts into words everything I've been searching for for years. It's the first time someone gave form to what I want. There's probably a lot of people today who would say the same thing about that. The words were Adolf Hitler's. The listener was someone in the audience who made that comment to Goebbels. Goebbels was Hitler's master minister of propaganda, and clearly a very, very good one. The words were spoken to Germans, beaten down by World War I, humiliated, longing for dignity, didn't have bread on the shelves, and they wanted security. The emotional and verbal power touched their longings. And when that happens, human beings tend to respond with trust and they, because the longings in them sound like they're going to be satisfied, but they trust without waiting to see if the words are backed with integrity. The German people and the German church followed those words into great evil and off a cliff that still affects generations. Knowledge, intellect, and skill also give us power. If I'm smarter, or I have more skill in something, I have power in those arenas. My car mechanic has great power. He says to me, the gobbledygook is broken. (laughs) And I need to replace it with a flippity-flop. And you know what I say? Okay. Actually, what I really say is, how much? But you see, those with theological knowledge have theological power. It is assumed they know and can give and, ha- and are given the right to tell us about God and who he is and what he wants from us and how he thinks we should act. The power of a pastor is intensified in that uh, theological realm by the fact that many see him as speaking for God, and indeed, in some cases, he may tell them he's doing exactly that. So the pastor says to a woman, you go home to the man who's beating you regularly and try to love him better. And you know what she says? Okay. The same thing I say to my car mechanic. She trusts... That he knows what God thinks, just like I trust my car mechanic is telling me the truth. Many of us experience this imbalance of power when we are with physicians and sick, because we trust them to tell us what's wrong and how to fix it. It's extremely vulnerable. We trust because we assume knowledge and skill are held by a trustworthy person. Think Larry Nasser. There's also power of position. Position can be literal, like president or CEO or teacher or pastor or therapist, whatever. But it also extends to reputation or status. So those that are labeled by others to be brilliant or particularly godly or successful are accorded power by many people just by virtue of that reputation. So they can walk into a room and the people give their words and actions a a much greater weight or power, sort of like in Germany, without waiting to test for integrity of character. It's critical to note that many kinds of power can be wrapped up in one person. You think about it. Position combined with a larger dynamic presence, verbal skill, knowledge, and the capacity to sway people emotionally, that is a phenomenal combination. We assume those things indicate character. They do not. For example, take a dynamic physical presence an articulate voice, emotional sway, theological knowledge, roll it all up into the position of pastor or teacher, put that in a room with a female, usually less powerful physically, a parishioner who who has less power of position, A person who's struggling and has many questions, or is full of pain and struggling theologically and perhaps a little inarticulate, and you have a setup for the abuse of power. Words, knowledge, skill, position, and emotions used in concert to move or convince another person who is vulnerable. Or you take a teacher or a dorm parent in a boarding school, mission boarding school, or an an adult with knowledge in a powerful position, and you put them with a child who's away from home, who's small, who's emotionally vulnerable, and it's not hard to see how verbal, physical, and sexual abuse can easily occur in those circumstances. Or you take the leader of a country promising freedom and food and jobs and dignity. Vulnerability, isolation, neediness, ignorance, emotional pain, previous abuse and a lack of power make any individual susceptible to abuse by another. There's another kind of power that I think is important to understand and that's the power of culture. Culture can be used to refer to a country's culture or a geographical region an institution or family culture. It can be secular or religious. You and I live in and imbibe multiple levels of culture and we often accept their trappings without consent and without assessment. So I think people are often seduced by their own culture and they don't even know that they've swallowed it we imbibe our surrounding cultures, we are shaped by them, and because it is simply what we know, we can easily be blinded to it, oblivious to the toxins we inject, and we stop. We do not stop to assess what we're taking in. And you throw a few verses around some of those cultural things, and they're in. They're settled. So you think about it this way. Suppose you are a young black male, Living in an inner city in the midst of great poverty, you have no idea who your father is. You have never known an adult male who was nurturing or who held a regular job. You literally don't have a file in your brain for those things. So how could you aspire to them if you can't even imagine them? or have any idea what the road there might look like the power of the culture of generational poverty and trauma and violence and abuse controls many many people in this world it's the only culture they know how do you even know that the sexual abuse of a child is an aberration an evil if some that kind of abuse is simply part of the culture i was in a, a, a Cambodia some years ago, and I was teaching people from 10 different countries about trauma and abuse and all those things, and a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I have lived and served in Mongolia for 10 years, and I have never met one female who was not sexually abused. They don't know how to imagine not being, because of that culture. How do you grasp that domestic violence is an abuse of power when you've never known a female who wasn't beaten. And all the men and religious leaders in your life sanctify it with words taken from scripture. The power of culture is profound and it increases exponentially when it is baptized by church leaders. The teachings and rules of a given culture can be a form of what we might refer to as systemic abuse The meaning of the word system is to stand together. Churches, denominations have cultures. Those cultures are said to be biblical. What happens when the system and its leadership stand together and legitimize violence or rape or incest followed by a church body that stands together echoing that belief and supporting that belief with verses from the scriptures? It's a tremendous power. And it is very difficult for many of us to discern if it is all we have known, and it is extremely difficult to change. It results because of a collective of many types of power rolled up in one in a body of leaders that is used to silence, correct, and frankly oppress vulnerable, beaten down human beings with little to no power. The oppression of human beings is obviously An abuse of power. To oppress means to burden, to lie heavy on someone, to keep them down. It is an unjust use of our authority. It squeezes and suffocates human beings that we're told were created in the image of God. Do you ever think about the fact that you'll never meet somebody who wasn't? Doesn't matter who they are, what they've done, how they act, you'll never meet a human being who is not created in the image of God though it may be well hidden, it is there. But you think about the the centuries of oppression during slavery in this country and racism, and you note the long-term generational effects still going on. You add poverty, poor educational systems, a culture of violence and hopelessness, it's easy to see how that hopelessness is contagious. It's literally, oppression is literally a crushing of the image that God placed in humans. We were meant to be fruitful. We were meant to flourish. We were meant to multiply, and I don't think that just means babies. We we're meant to multiply the image of God, the bare fruit that looks like him. Power used in God's name to protect the system rather than the victim, is ungodly power. Jesus Christ did not die for our systems. He died for human beings. So it's very easy, I think, like the Israelites. They were delighting in their rebuilt temple. And they were repeatedly saying in Jeremiah, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, And God called them lying words not to be trusted because the system was ungodly. And he said, you trust in lying words and then you come and stand before me in this house that is called by my name. And his eventual response was to destroy the temple he had designed and scatter the people to Babylon. So it's very important, I think, that we in the Christian world begin to learn how to think about systems and oppression and how we have baptized things from our own cultures, either geographically or family-wise or whatever, and made them godly and responded to human beings based on those things which actually have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. We also can't talk about power and abuse without considering spiritual power or spiritual abuse. Power that is given spiritual credibility is, not to be redundant, very powerful. Sanctified power is a double whammy. Research on power and compassion or empathy has shown that elevated power is associated with diminished empathy. So the higher power you have, the less empathy you have, according to the research. That's really scary. And that's not just, you know, big wigs running countries or corporations or whatever, that's a teacher in a classroom. <laughs> you know, that, it could be anybody in any situation. The more powerful you are in that system, the research shows you can have increasingly less empathy as time goes by. Which makes you a danger for those over whom you have power. It's very troubling that people in power have less empathy. It's also stunning to think about as a Christian because the one we follow is the one of highest power and the greatest empathy. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Finally, another kind of power is the power of withholding. We see this in marriages sometimes. Withholding words or affection or sex or money or whatever and the withholding is for the purpose of controlling or coercing the other individual. Withholding power can also be complicity and this happens certainly in families, it also happens in systems. When we stand together with abusive systems and keep silent about the abuses that are occurring, we are complicit with that system The word complicit means folded up together with. So we can withhold our power to speak truth, to name or to validate victims, which essentially means our power is being used in support of the abusive system, even if we're not saying anything. Someone who speaks out against abuse in a system is a dissident, and that word means to sit apart. So a dissident sits apart from the system that stands together. Sometimes not a very safe place to be. But our God calls us to use power to speak truth and to care for the afflicted and the, and the needy. And when we do that, we take risks for sure. But we are also following our Lord who was a dissident and who spoke out against the systems of his day that were crushing and abusing human beings. Let's switch tracks just a minute here, and let's look a little bit more intently at the abuse of power and its relationship, which is very intimate, with deception. There are three components to the abuse of power, the deception of self, the deception of others, and then finally, the coercion of others. An abuser deceives and confuses others. But the one abusing power is clearly already deceived. Deceived in terms of being able to deaden his or her ability to discern truth and lies or good and evil. Telling him or herself I'm doing this because or this is really okay or whatever. And so all of that deception goes on inside and then begins to exercise itself outward So we deaden our our ability, again, to discern good and evil when we are abusive. Truth and lies not only are confused, sometimes they're actually reversed. So self-deception works in concert with temptation. So we can convince ourselves of the rightness or goodness of things that are, in fact, wrong. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Self-deception worked in concert and so with temptation, and they convinced themselves that they were doing a good thing that would make them more like God. Classic example, of course, is domestic violence. I hit her because she, right? Self-deception functions like a narcotic, it numbs us to the damage and danger of our choices. And of course, if we engage in self-deception long enough, we lose our, over time, we lose our taste for good and our power to hate evil. And we eventually can silence the voice of God in our lives and our response of fear to that voice. Of course, the problem is that sin actually does hurt us. So we've numbed ourselves to something that is doing damage to our souls, which is very frightening. And once we begin removing our taste for good and our power to hate evil, it's very easy to habituate that deception. And it can be increasingly practiced by a dead soul. You think about somebody who's had an addiction for years. That's what this is. That they are deceiving themselves that this is okay somehow, or this is good somehow for me. And over time, they lose the capacity even to make the choice. It's just become what they do. And once we have deceived ourselves, it's really not very hard to deceive others. So you go back to the domestic violence thing and somebody's sitting in front of the pastor. Well, I I don't want to hit her. I didn't mean to hit her and I love her very much, but you know, she blah, 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 blah. Right? And so the person who did the violating is putting it in words that say, the other person made me do it. And if the words are good, they can pull the person they're talking to into the same deception. And so you've got two people in the room saying, but she, which is diametrically opposed to our Lord, who said, what comes out of the heart of a person, what comes out of a person comes from the heart of the person. I did that because me, not because she. She may have done a lot of wrong things, but that's what came out of you tells us about you. Deception keeps us from looking at that. So again, we can use then our personality, our traits, our skills to deceive others and draw them into the cover-up, And we can easily present ourselves as being for others rather than against them. So you take some of the big things in the media lately about church leaders and things like that who have done some horrific things, and have looped in others in leadership in their systems to see that that's a sad thing and I'm sorry that happened but you know we're really trying to do this over here and it's very important and we have this mission and it's for God and on and on. And so the self-deception that the leader has done has now looped in others in order to keep the system going. So, We also then, if you go back to what I said before, fail to look for integrity in people. We look at gifts, abilities, accomplishments instead and assume integrity. So you have somebody in church, say a businessman who's extremely generous with his money, he can't possibly be somebody who's hurting his children. That's how we think. Or an outstanding coach cannot possibly be somebody who abuses boys, Jerry Sandusky. An articulate political leader who promises food and jobs and everything else cannot possibly turn out to be a tyrant. We allow ourselves to be deceived by the deceiver because we want what they promise. Or we are vulnerable, hungry, broken, and they give us hope. And so we believe that what they're doing is for good when in fact it is coming from a prowling wolf. Coercion is another component of the abuse of power. Coercion is about restraining or silencing somebody or keeping them from acting. The word means to surround, you know, like you would circle something and prevent it from going anywhere. So the force can be physical or verbal or emotional, but we can coerce with words. People do this all the time. Again, you go back to Adolf Hitler, but you think in a more, much more poignant and smaller way, the threat of dire consequences given by a father to a child he is abusing to coerce that child into silence. If you tell, I have to go to jail. If you tell, mommy won't love you anymore. And so that's all that needs to be said. Those words have surrounded that child and kept him or her from speaking truth. To oppress somebody is to impose unreasonable burdens. That's part of how we coerce, to severely weigh them down. So you can often, also not just through words, but you can coerce by emotional things, and anger is pretty much the power tool for that. So if you're working, say, with a domestic violence situation, um, if you have somebody who's battering and threatening and everything else, his wife, and then this couple's over here at a basketball game for their kid, and the wife says, I wanna go say hi to so-and-so, and you watch him look at her, and she says, oh, never mind, I don't really wanna go. That's all he needs to do. You've been hit once, you listen. And so that's coercion and oppression that goes on, and very little needs to happen in order for it to work, because the threat of what already happened is always in the room. All right, let me give you two scriptures that I think will guide us in terms of a scriptural use of power. There is hope, just for the record. (laughs) Jesus said an astonishing thing in Matthew 28. He said this, all authority, no exceptions, all power, no exceptions, is given to me. Therefore, go. In John 20, he showed the disciples his hands and his feet and his side, and he said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Now, you're looking at a beaten up body saying, as the Father sent me, so send I you. That's probably a good reason to consider dropping out, yes? (laughs) But you think about that first verse. Jesus says, I hold all power. That means that any tiny little bit of power that you or I have is a derivative. It's actually not ours. It's his. If you have verbal power, it's his. You have emotional power, it's his. Physical power, it's his. He has shared what is rightfully his with us Intending, of course, that we use it as he would. So are you verbally power? The word gave that power to you. Are you physically power, powerful? The mighty God who breaks down strongholds gave you that power. Do you have power of position? It came from the king of kings and lord of lords. Do you have power of knowledge or skill? The Creator God, whose ways are past finding out, gave that power to you. Do you have emotional power with others? The Comforter, the Wonderful Counselor, gave you that power. Any power that you and I hold, in any circumstance, with any human beings, is the power of Jesus Christ bestowed on us for one purpose and one purpose only— And that is to glorify him. So it is his power in you for the purpose of bringing glory to him. Second, if all power is derivative, then we will hold it with great humility. It's actually not mine. Somebody gave it to me. I can't strut around and say, look at me, look what I have. We are creatures, you and I. We are no more and no less. We follow the one who became flesh, and he who holds all power said something like this, which is really quite astonishing when you think about it. The son can do nothing of himself. (laughs) So he had humility. I am come not to do my own will. I am come not to seek my own glory. The state of the heart manifested by the son of the father should abound in us who follow him. We trust our own knowledge and teachings. We trust our own writings. We trust our own organizations. We trust our own skills and reputations. He did nothing of the sort. We seek a share of the glory and power for ourselves. He humbled himself before God and man and became a servant. We scurry to build our little kingdoms, whether they be in our home or among a certain group or over a huge organization. He came to build the Father's kingdom. He shares his power with us as creatures, and it is to be held in trust. We seek to use it for ourselves. But if we understand the nature of power and we really understand its true source and its danger, which is great, we will walk with great humility Because we would, as our master said, want to glorify the Father with the derivative power that we have been given as a gift. He said also that if we would be chief, which there's a lot of scurrying for chiefdom in this world, isn't there? You want to be chief? You want to have power? Bend. Serve. Serve reached down, that's what he did. That's in essence what he did. And then before telling the disciples that he was sending them out with his power in order to glorify the Father, he said, look, you see my hands? You see my side? These are the marks of great humility. The visible evidence that I came to serve and not be served. Those marks are the insignia of his authority. That is so backwards from our brains. Scars as an insignia of power. The way humans think, the way I think, you think, is that if you really have power, nobody will hurt you. He let us hurt him. So those of us who are called to follow him And who are endowed with his power. And there's nobody in this room who is not. Endowed with his power are called to go the way of the cross. Third, we tend to make the mistake, I think, of seeing power as an external thing. That's not about having rule over a spouse or a church or a parishioner or an institution or a country or whatever. It's not external. I mean, if it's external, Jesus really messed up. It's internal. God's kingdom is the kingdom of the heart. It's not the kingdom of our churches and institutions and organizations. They're not going to heaven. He's building his kingdom, not ours. And he does that by having authority over the human heart to the point that it is full of the spirit of Christ. That is godly power. And we are full of God's power internally when the fruit of our lives looks like him. And we bear the fruit of light and truth and grace and love into all of our external enterprises. So they become full of him by virtue of us being full of him. Any cause or work, no matter how good, that leads us to sin, has become an ungodly force in our life. Anytime we tell ourselves, but this is God's work and I need to protect it, so I have to hide this, it's already not God's work. Any power God has given us to be used is to be used in conformity to the word of God and the character of God. And if we use our powers, he intended, how will we serve? We've said that all power is derivative and is to be held with humility to what end? It's to be held in love to God and others. Its sole purpose is that it should be for the glory of God. You bend down to a tiny little one who's screaming their head off and love them and speak truth to them. You've glorified the Father in Heaven. You run a big company You've got people all over the world doing stuff for Jesus. Something happens, you choose not to protect the company, but rather to honor him, you've glorified the Father. Any use of power that's based on self-deception is a wrong use of power. Using power to drive ministry workers into the ground for the sake of the gospel is a wrong use of power. Using emotional and verbal power to achieve glory, when God clearly says he will share his glory with no one, is a wrong use of power. Using the power of theological knowledge to maneuver people to achieve our own ends is a wrong use of power. Using your position or your power in the home or the church to get your own way, to feel better, to meet your own goals, To silence or frighten others is an ungodly use of power. Using our influence, our reputations to manipulate others to further our ends is a wrong use of power. In addition, the failure to exercise godly power, withholding it in the face of sin or tyranny or oppression is for us to sin against a holy God for we have become folded up with evil that he hates. It is also an abuse of power, for we have nullified our God-given power to speak truth in this world, and we have become a silent oppressor instead. He says, use your verbal power and open your mouth for the mute, for the afflicted, for the needy. Complicity is a strangling of God-given power meant to, to be active in this world on his behalf. I wanna close this by telling you a story, true story, because I think it helps us see how God would have us exercise our power. Because you see, I think God gave us power to bless, not to harm. That's the purpose of the power that we have. That's how he used his and continues to. So power is meant to be a benediction over others and this world. You and I have God-given power to bless the people in our homes and our churches and our cities in our country and the world. The origin of bless is an old English word which means to mark or make sacred by blood. God calls us to use our power to bless by way of sacrifice, by way of the cross. And again, make note that it is the one who holds all power who made that sacrifice and it is the powerless that he blessed. Our younger son, worked in um, Abu Dhabi for some years for a member of the royal household, someone he had met during his work in Washington DC and he was invited over there to continue that work in Abu Dhabi. While he was there, my husband Ron and I went as the prince's guests to visit our son and to see the country. At the last minute, we got a phone call um, and we were asked by his highness to come a few days early because his schedule had changed and he wanted to be in the country when we arrived. And the call came through and we're standing there with the phone looking at each other and we know that this is gonna make a disaster out of our schedules. And our immediate response was to say, of course. (laughs) The prince had come, we would go, no thought required. It would impact others. But our response was certain and sure, and therein lies the first lesson. I, without thought, gave earthly royalty and power immediate obedience. Now, I don't think I made the wrong decision, but it was a cause and continues to be a cause for reflection to me to realize how quickly I bowed. I have realized that it is in all of us to bow wrongly to power, particularly when it looks good. And how often has my lord, the king of heaven and earth, called to me and I have equivocated or delayed, or even at times of my life, flatly refused. I would do for an earthly prince what I would not do for my lord who holds all power and who has blessed me by his blood. We went. We went on a fancy airline. We had very fancy seats. We had very fancy food. We were met at the airport by our son. We had flown overnight to be whisked away to the palace immediately to meet the prince. I am a female. I was walking into a room full of Arab men. So I went over protocol very carefully with my son. And he said things like, we'll walk in, you'll stand in the doorway and wait to be greeted. You will not speak first. The prince will stay seated. You will sit where you're told. (laughs) I'm sure he enjoyed telling his mother that. (laughs) He said, do not offer him your hand and do not sit until directed. To my son's knowledge, no female had ever been in that modulus in the time that he had been there and he spent every night in that room, so he knew. So we arrived, we were escorted into the palace and taken to the meeting place. The room consisted of probably 15 plus Arab men in full regalia. My husband and I walked in, and no sooner had we done so. than the prince stood, walked quickly over, extending his hand to me, and showed me the seat at his right hand. All 15 men followed and copied him. They followed what their prince did. We were honored and graciously welcomed. Now, this man would have been well within his rights to follow protocol. I would have understood and respected that and honored him. In fact, he risked criticism or lack of respect because he broke all the rules. In fact, he broke them boldly because he had an audience. He chose to gather up his power, which is great, and instead use it to pour out blessing, which he continued to do during our whole stay in that country. He embodied for me power poured out as blessing. That gracious sheikh blessed my son, and still does, abundantly, by welcoming him into his life and work. In turn, for sake of the son, he blessed my husband and me by stepping across all those human divides, titles and fortifications and position, and invited us to sit at his right hand and receive honor from the one we came to honor. It is a small taste, but a true one, I think, of the Lord of heaven and earth, seated on the throne with grace and glory. And I was awed by the earthly prince who crossed over position and tradition and culture and gender and training to greet me with his hand. But that experience has taught me many, many times as I have reflected on it, the awe due to my true Lord, who at great cost beyond measure has welcomed me and you crossing over the barriers of highest position as well as those of sin and death, to welcome us to his right hand. We are indeed blessed by his blood. It is my prayer that you and I as his children will view earthly power with clear eyes and not be seduced, not deceive ourselves or others regarding any use of power that is not under the authority of the one who holds all power. May we live in the dark places, and there are many, shining as light, the light of Christ, shining on the abuses of power around us, whether they're in our own churches or families or companies or neighborhood. And may we speak to those individuals or systems who are crushing God's little ones in God's name and like our Lord lay aside every bit of earthly power to step across the divides that human beings have made, to step out of our high positions, to reach out with love to those whose power has been trampled sometimes for generations, bestowing benedictions as we go. All power, he said, no exceptions, has been given to me in heaven and on earth Therefore, you go and bless my world. Thank you.